0: On Monday of this week, I received word that a colleague, Don Durham, had passed away. Don was active. He was healthy as far as anybody knew. It was really quite a shock for people who knew him. Rumor has it that there was a time that Don wore suits and carried the Wall Street Journal under his arm. I didn't know him then. He was just kind of breaking out of that world. Um, when I began to know him, he was starting to grow a very long beard of a, a curmudgeon farmer that he was becoming. Under his leadership, uh, the fellowship board uh, of Cooperative Baptist Fellowship that we uh, give money to here um, grew. Uh, there, under his leadership, it grew by 20, their funds grew by $20 million in the middle of two different recessions. The CBF Foundation reached physical stability in large part due to his wise and strong leadership. He was a good leader. He was smart about money, but something shifted with him. I didn't know Don well enough to get the full story, but I know that denominational life of networking, power playing, and slow-moving decision-making that's often controlled by who has the most money and thus who has the most power – didn't line up with the gospel that he was believing in more and more. He wanted to help the poor, and he felt like playing the game wasn't worth it. And so he left. He left it all. Bought some land and became a farmer. He used his land to give jobs to people who needed them and to give food away. He still worked in churches. He funded this work uh, by working in churches as interim ministers, as a consultant, Um, oftentimes he was working um, as kind of a loving kind of prophet, willing to say what needed to be said while embracing the people. There was one official article that was written about Don this week. I was a little bit put off by the people of power that gave quotes for it because they all wanted to keep a little distance from Don. One even went so far as to say, Don and I did not connect on a cultural level. He walked to a different drumbeat from me. He did go on to say some nice things. All the people in power did say nice things, but always keeping a little bit of distance from him. Another article was written, though. It was by a young minister, not by the powers that be. A dear friend of mine, Tiffany, um, who knew Don well. They had served together. He had served as an interim minister with her in a church church where she was being pushed around and really abused within this church setting that she was a minister in. And Don cared for her and cared well and stayed in touch with her. She sent me this other article because she said this was the Don that she knew. Don had a way of loving ministers who've been dumped on or mistreated by churches they serve, or or even just those ministers who really wanted to make a difference in the world and church communities that often argue about silly things like the color of the carpet. Don would introduce himself for every episode of the Bible Bash podcast, which he co-hosted as a hermit-like farmer and a cantankerous curmudgeon. (laughs) The author of this second article, Justin Cox. Uh, said he didn't fully believe that though. He was a hermit who loved company, a curmudgeon who loved people. He said, I knew this before I read the words of others about him. I knew this before I received messages from friends and acquaintances who were part of the vast constellation of relationships Don, Don hung in the skies of his own making. You see, Don created worlds with and for people Sometimes you'd almost forget he cared for others as much as he did you. He lived on the fringe, but his circles were many. Justin wrote, my Don was a long-haired, bearded, and sported bibbed overalls. He'd already traded in the slow-moving wheels of denominational life for the slow but life-giving tires of an old tractor, where tinkering with the latter tended to produce more than the former. This Don was unfiltered and edit free, no longer tethered to an institution. He didn't so much as march to a different drum as he unburdened himself of the drum altogether. When I think of Jesus, when I think of this passage from James and what it's asking of us, I can't help but think of Don. And I, I don't think it's just because he passed away this week. I think of how I read these words of James, and I immediately start kind of distancing myself based on what's practical. I mean, really, what kind of work could be done once you get to a position of power? Once you know the powerful people, what kind of influence could you have? But this week, as I pedal back from the passage in James, I can't help but think that I sound just like one of these people in power that was distancing themselves from my friend on. The truth is that the battle for power and the game of who has the most power and money gets to make the most decisions is a drum that is beating so loudly all around us that it's hard to hear that it, it may be off. It may be something we don't want to march to anymore. A few weeks ago, as we talked about the anniversary of the death of Princess Diana, I remembered at the time how much was made of her death and how little was made of the death of Mother Teresa that happened just days apart. And even in this 25th anniversary, I I didn't hear anything about Mother Teresa. Maybe that was just the circles I was running in, but, but I heard lots about Princess Diana. I did enjoy these last two weeks and all the pomp and ceremony of the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. It was historic, and I found emotion coming up in me that kind of surprised me. I followed the progress of the queue. If you don't know what the queue was, that's their word for line, but this queue, the queue, was the line to go by and pay respects to Queen Elizabeth. They live streamed it. You could follow the map of where the queue was and how long it was on an app. And um, people were, it was a, a line that you were constantly moving in. There was no taking a break, no sitting down, no stopping. It was constantly moving. At multiple points, the queue had to completely shut down. They had to stop adding people because the wait was 24 hours that people were standing to have a moment, literally just a moment to stop in front of the casket, pay their respects and move on. While our 24 hours of the co- our 24-hour coverage of these funeral proceedings and my own watching of the queue were happening on every major network, Hurricane Fiona was hitting Puerto Rico, a U.S. territory and and other small islands in the area. Puerto Rico was hit with 85-mile-an-hour winds, there's no power, and there's widespread flooding everywhere. You may be seeing that more on the news now, but we were not covering it live like we were the death of Queen Elizabeth. This happens all the time. The people with power get the loudest voices. The poor, the people without power, are often treated like pawns in a game. And it's a game that will never win. That's what James is saying here. Don't you get it? These power plays, these these struggles, it, it never ends well. This idea that power and money will trickle down to us, it never happens. Often, we keep playing the same games we've played before. I try really hard not to talk directly about current politics, even though I think there's some very key examples of this playing out right now. But I did learn this week about a situation back in the 60s that sounds a lot like current news topics today, but I learned this week about reverse freedom rides. I was ashamed I didn't know about this. happened in the 60s. NPR said, after three days on a Greyhound bus, Leela Mae Williams was just an hour from her destination, Hyannis, Massachusetts, when she asked the bus driver to pull over. She needed to change into her finest clothes. She had been promised the Kennedy family would be waiting for her. It was late on a Wednesday afternoon nearly 60 years ago when that Greyhound bus from Little Rock, Arkansas pulled into Hyannis. It slowed to a stop near the summer home of President John F. Kennedy and his family. When the doors opened, Lila May and her nine youngest children stepped onto the pavement. Reporters' microphones were pointed at her, their cameras trained on her family. The photographs in the next day's newspapers show Lila May looking immaculate. In an elegant black dress, a string of pearls, and a white hat, she was dressed to start a new life. She was going to have a job and she was going to be able to support her family. One of Leela May's daughters, Betty Williams remembered in a recent interview. Before coming north to Massachusetts, Leela May had been promised a good job, good housing, and a presidential welcome. But President Kennedy was not there to meet her. And there was no job or permanent housing waiting for her. Instead, Leela May and others were unwitting pawns in a segregationist game. It was one of the most inhuman things I have ever seen, recalled Margaret Mosley, a longtime civil rights activist in Hyannis. Fuming over the civil rights movement, Southern segregationists had concocted a way to retaliate against Northern liberals. In 1962, they tricked about 200 African-Americans from the South into moving North. The idea was simple when large numbers of African-Americans showed up on Northern doorsteps, Northerners would not be able to accommodate them. They would want, not want them and their hypocrisy would be exposed. It was the people on the ground that tried to help these individuals that they referred to as refugees. They were able to help to some degree, but no one was prepared for this number. And so they housed them in things like prisons, They had to disperse them throughout the North in order to be able to find work for them. These people had left all of their support networks along with their belongings because they were told that everything would be provided for. But it wasn't just the most obviously racist politicians that were the problem. President Kennedy largely tried to avoid the topic. When worried and enraged citizens wrote letters to the White House The standard reply was that the situation was deplorable, but there was no violation of the law. When Kennedy was asked about it at a news conference, he paused before saying, well, I think it's a a rather cheap exercise in... (laughs) He hesitated and stumbled and tried to dodge the question for more than a minute. When we are not aware of the power dynamics around us to that drum that's beating, when we're not even aware of the games we're playing, we are more likely to keep repeating them over and over again because our comfort, our resources, our power easily becomes more important and we lose sight of the people affected. The word of James are just as important today as they were when they were written. In the spirit of letters, I'm going to close out with words from Don Durham himself about what he learned about a year ago he wrote this on his blog for about a decade up until 2010 i had a cushy denominational job that paid six figures i walked away from that to take comfort in a patchwork quilt of sporadic part-time self-employment so i could have enough time to tend a project here growing food to give away It's not the most radical thing to do, but it's what I could do. For 20 years, I had worked with very generous donors who funded all sorts of amazing work. Over that time, I got to participate in raising somewhere between 60 to 70 million dollars for various charitable work of one kind or another. Surrounding all of the memorable donors who stand out for their singularly extreme capacity for making large, generous gifts, were seas of groups and individuals with more modest capacities for giving, but with no less persistent capacity for deep generosity. A consistent refrain in all that time was, I wish I had more so I could give more. After a while, I reached the conclusion that this was well BS. That's not what Don says, but we're going to say that this morning. <laughs> I never said that to any individual directly. That would have been unnecessarily rude. I did call the bluff though. For a decade now, I've gotten by with less than I could have ever imagined, without anything you could call a safety net on one single-minded determination to put seeds in the ground in the spring and give away what comes up. While not being able to afford regular car repairs or medical care, I've managed to give away an average of six to eight thousand pounds of food for eight of the ten years I've been here. He goes on to say, I'm not proclaiming that everyone could or should Do something like I've done for the last decade. It isn't sustainable for me to keep doing it forever. It wouldn't be suitable suitable for everyone else either. I am proclaiming, though, that no one needs to have more to be able to give more. The only question about where one's focus lands between getting, having, and giving. Your call. I read that wrong, so I'm going to read that last sentence again so it actually makes sense. The only question is about where one's focus lands, between getting, having, and giving. It's your call. This week, may we pay attention to the drumbeats we are moving to. May we pay attention and speak up to the drumbeats that are driving our country, driving our world. May we have the courage to leave those drumbeats behind and find our own. Will you pray with me?